Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and this is With Friends Like These. We've been talking about good intentions this season of the show. And this episode, we're going to dive into one that's deliciously complicated, body positivity. That seems like a, a good thing, right? Everyone knows we're held to impossible beauty standards. Everyone knows the ideal shape is impossible to achieve. Everyone knows you shouldn't be ashamed of your body. Even advertisers know this. Handles, come on. If you're a woman like myself, you don't always feel like the masterpiece you are. Feeling comfortable and confident in your clothes is almost impossible when your body is always changing. Maybe your period started and now you can't fit into yesterday's jeans. <laughs> Maybe you grew a human inside your body, pushed it out of your body, and you're still Capitalism expected to show is up. is really good at bending radical messages into harnesses. Or in this case, girdles. If I understand this ad correctly, I am being held to impossible beauty standards, and that is bad. But also, if I want to conform to impossible beauty standards, here is a, a girdle thing that will literally make me conform to impossible beauty standards. You know, if ads like this actually worked, if they were about what they say they're about, there wouldn't be ads like this. But this is not an ad designed to make you feel better about your body. This is an ad designed to make you feel better about buying shapewear so that you can feel better about your body or the version of your body that's squeezed into shapewear, the version that's just you. Well, obviously, you're going to have to do something about that. My guest this week argues that as long as we are personally and internally engaging in the compare and despair game that capitalism needs to survive, we'll never really be liberated, personally or as a society. If we've internalized the systemic oppression that says some bodies are better than others, then we're never going to throw it off externally. Sonia Renee Taylor is the author of The Body is Not an Apology, and she's here to tell us about the radical possibilities that emerge when we truly love ourselves exactly as we are. Sonia Renee Taylor, coming right up after a break for capitalism because it exists. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. We talk a lot about inside work on this show and on this episode in particular. And as I have said, that's the hard stuff for me. So I get help. I have a therapist. I have a support group. I don't try to do it by myself. And I don't think anyone should have to. If you are looking for someone to help you with that inside work, carry the other end of the feeling sofa or help you pick out the paint colors for your brain, BetterHelp can connect you with someone to do that job. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll meet in a safe and private online environment, and you can start within 24 hours. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling. And your counselor is yours. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You will get a timely and thoughtful response in addition to weekly video or phone sessions. There's no waiting room. There's no drive across town. You don't even really have to get out of bed. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And the service is available for clients worldwide. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And if you still can't swing it, Financial aid is available. You can find help with depression or anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping or trauma, and anything you share is confidential. The portal you use is secure. And you can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. It is a growing business, not really a surprise. They're hiring in all 50 states right now. You deserve to heal. You deserve help. And our listeners can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash friends. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I would love to start with a reading from your book if you have one for us. Um, sure, absolutely. Happy to. Um, I'll start from the beginning. This is chapter one, making self-love radical, what radical self-love is and what it ain't. 
Let me answer a couple of questions right away before you dig too deeply into this book and are left feeling bamboozled and hoodwinked. First, will this book fix my self-esteem, Sonia? Nope. Second, will this book teach me how to have self-confidence? Nah. Impromptu third question. Well, then why in Hades am I reading this book? You are reading this book because your heart is calling you towards something exponentially more magnanimous and more succulent than self-esteem or self-confidence. You are being called towards radical self-love. While not completely unrelated to self-esteem or self-confidence, radical self-love is its own entity, a lush and verdant island offering safe harbor for self-esteem and self-confidence. Unfortunately, those two ships often choose to wander aimlessly adrift at sea, relying on willpower or ego to drive them. And in the absence of those motions are left hopelessly pursuing the fraught mirage of someday. As in, someday I will feel good enough about myself to shop that screenplay I wrote. Or someday, when I have self-confidence, I'll get out of this raggedy relationship. Self-esteem and self-confidence are fleeting and both can exist without radical self-love, but it almost never bodes well for anyone involved when they do. Think of all the obnoxious people you know, oozing arrogance, folks we can be certain think extremely highly of themselves. Although you may call them um, confident, at least that may be one of the things you call them, I bet the phrase radical self-love doesn't quite fit. Pick your favorite totalitarian dictator and you will likely find someone who has done just fine in the self-confidence category. After all, you would have to think you're the bee's knees to entertain the idea of singularly dominating the entire planet. The 45th U.S. president strikes me as a man with epic self-confidence. The Donald is not struggling with his sense of self, even if the rest of the world is. Even if we were to surmise that Trump and others like him are acting from a hyperbolic lack of self-esteem or confidence, I think we can agree not much of their attitudes or actions feel like love. You may be asking, okay, well, if this book won't help me with my self-esteem or self-confidence, will it at least teach me self-acceptance? My short answer is, if I do my job correctly, no. Not because self-acceptance isn't useful, but because I believe there is a port far beyond the aisle of self-acceptance and I want us to go there. Too often self-acceptance is used as a synonym for acquiescence. We accept the things we cannot change. We accept death because we have no say over its arbitrary and indifferent arrival at our door. We have personal bland histories of self-acceptance. We've accepted lackluster jobs because we were broke. We've accepted lousy partners because their lousy presence was better than our hollow aloneness. We practice self-acceptance when we have grown tired of self-hatred, but can't conceive of anything beyond a paltry tolerance of ourselves. What a thin coat to wear on this weather-tossed road. Angela Davis said, I am no longer accepting the things that I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. We can change the circumstances that have had us settle for self-acceptance. I assure you, there is a richer, thicker, cozier blanket to carry through the world. There is a realm infinitely more mind-blowing. It's called radical self-love. Thank you. You have been on this journey. You have seen the promised land. You have gone beyond the port of self-acceptance, right? Is that the case? Because this book is, I think, above all things um, about generosity of spirit. And um, maybe that's a, a, not a way that's been phrased before. I know you can say what your, your book is about, but that's the thing I kept coming back to. That's perfect. I'm here for that. I'm totally here for that. I, yeah, I'm totally here for that. But we should probably get to get to some, some more basic things about the book first. So what does it mean? to say the body is not an apology? For me, it means that, I mean, in its most literal and simple terms, is that there's nothing to apologize for about my body um, or any of our bodies. And that it is not, it is not a walking sorry, you know? And there's so many ways I see us as humans walking in our bodies in the world like a sorry like a sorry for being too loud, sorry for being too quiet, sorry for being too big, too small, too black, too, like there are just so many ways in which we are always apologizing for these 
um, fleshy thought tubes, as my ex used to call them. <laughs> uh, and I think that, um, yeah, the body is not an apology is a, it's a mantra uh, that allows us to interrupt that notion that we need to be walking around like a sorry. I think the place where the book gets radical for me, there's the idea of radical self-love, of course. But there's also this idea that all the politics that we debate, all the social justice that, that we march for, fight for, or see, or try to disrupt oppression, all of it comes back to the body. That to say the body's not an apology isn't a statement about mere body positivity. It isn't a statement about diet culture, or, or you say it could be, but it's a statement about justice. Yes. Without question, it is a statement about justice. And I think that what we often miss is that all of those things are, you know, like uh, diet culture or, you know, at least maybe the inceptions of body positivity at their at their core are all questions about justice. They really are at their core questions about justice that we don't always, but we don't push the envelope far enough to really get to the question of justice inside of those issues. And I think that that is what radical self-love seeks to do is get to the question of justice as it relates to all of our bodies. That there's a connection between the body is not apology and black lives matter, right? Because that's another form that, that bodies are forced to apologize for. Exactly. Exactly. It's all the ways that we're forced. You know, if, if we think about the systems of inequity or injustice in the world, when we think about the isms, right, the isms and the obias, that's kind of the way I think about it, right? We're talking about racism. We're talking about sexism. We're talking about, um, you know, homophobia and transphobia. We're talking about ableism and ageism. When we're talking about all of those things, we're talking, even when we're talking about capitalism, at the end of the day, we are talking about bodies, right? Cap capitalism is about bodies and whose bodies um, labor for profit, right? Fat phobia is about what bodies we fear, what bodies we try to never have, what bodies we legislate as bad and wrong. Racism is about what bodies are valuable, are considered inherently human and worthy of dignity and which bodies are not. All of these systems, are, are tied to our bodies. And even when oppression isn't specifically about the body, all oppression happens on the body. I feel like this is something I knew, but I kept recovering in a fresh way in reading the book because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, nerd brainiac type person, but I love politics. I've talked about politics my entire life. I've always been like, and I've also even, you know, I can put it in terms of bodies. Like we got to put the white bodies on the street, you know, like gotta, we got to get there too. But I think there's some part of me that always thought of political debates as, as occurring between like brains and jars, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> and and reading your book, I was reminded, no, the reason we have these debates is because of our bodies. Like, we wouldn't be having debates about any of the things that you named, any kind of laws, if bodies weren't the, the thing. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I tell people all the time, like, if I really wrote the, the most duh book in the world. I think it's just that folks, it's so simple that we overlook it. And I think that's what's true about so many of the things is that we, we imagine these issues as wildly complex. And in some ways they are, but in some ways they are really simple. Uh, and it's the simplicity that we sometimes miss. Now that we've drawn this really firm dark line, right, between the concept of um, radical self-love and the, and the concept of just liberation in all its forms, let's go to the dark side, which is what you call body terrorism. What is body terrorism? Body terrorism are all the systems and structures in our societies that make living in a body a deadly experience. Um, and whether that be deadly, you know, in the sense that, a, you know, that a routine engagement with police might end in your death on the street on a video to 
um, the, you know, choice of a trans teenager to take their life because of the level of social and emotional isolation and rejection they experienced. All of the ways that, that our systems are structured to reinforce um, a sense of disconnection, a sense of not enoughness, a sense of being stripped of resource, opportunity, and dignity as a result of the bodies that we live in, all those systems are the function of body terrorism. They are the manifestation of body terrorism. You write in the book that some people um, tisked at you for using the word terrorism, that um, these things that you were talking about seem somehow uh, on a different scale than, I will go ahead and say it, 9-11, right? My thought was all terrorism is body terrorism, right? I mean... It's sort of like we're not brains in jars. Like and and also like you I would please tell your your reasoning behind this cuz I am you got me way on board. Yeah, I'm glad you're such an easy sale. Uh, <laughs> um yeah, like all terrorism, the point of terrorism, even if we operate inside of the traditional definition of terrorism as, you know, um coordinated violence, usually for political uh, gain against the state, right? Like even, or toward the, from the state, against the state. Even if we're operating from that, what we're still talking about is how do we create immense amounts of fear inside of people's bodies for the purpose of control, right? Whatever that is, whatever kind of control it is. I would offer that that same level of control that same level of um, external efforting to corral bodies that we do not deem as valuable in the world exists in all kinds of ways across all kinds of planes in our society. And, you know, the point of the kinds of draconian laws that we see attacking Roe v. Wade, for instance, um, are intended to make people who are pregnant and seeking uh, a termination to that pregnancy, terrified to do it. Like that's the intention of that is to now to make you terrified so that you won't do it. And then to also put up all the, the structural things to make it so you can't do it. That's the intention. The intention of uh, I, the intention, whether or not, you know, whether or not it does this, the intention of, mandating only certain that seats are so small on planes is to maximize profit and to control bodies that is also born inside of those decisions and i think that we are just so used to being fed the idea of terrorism as this thing only certain bodies brown bodies from other parts of the world do to us um, that it obscures all the ways in which those tactics are used on a daily basis against people inside of society based on our bodies. Um, and then also takes that word and, and uses that word to create more systems of body terrorism against brown, Arab, Muslim bodies. And we can also be literal about it, which you point out in the book, which is that the kinds of body terrorism that you refer to have killed just as many people or more. I would offer definitely more. What I was thinking about as you were going through the ways that body terrorism manifests itself um, more subtly is the amount of people that are dying from COVID every day. And that the mismanagement of the coronavirus is also body terrorism without question it's a huge form of body terrorism the particularly given i think it's always important for us to acknowledge the sort of levels that are happening inside of the system right so over it is clear that the bodies we value less are the bodies that are the most vulnerable inside of this pandemic 
I did want to talk a little bit about the pandemic and and the ways in which the social revolutions we've been having and the adjustments we've been having um, are intertwined with the future of radical self-love. But I think we should get back on the radical self-love train specifically. I, I really want to dig in on some stuff that, that was in the reading that you did, which had to do with this difference between acceptance and love. And also you and I both referred to kind of the the um, the inadequacy of, of what sometimes people call body positivity. And I'll 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 start. Um, so the theme of this season is good intentions. And when I was coming up with episodes, I knew immediately I wanted to do something on body positivity. Because I'm a late, I will admit I'm a latecomer to the revelation of how I'm going to use the word insidious. It can be. Um, we had Amanda Hess on the show um, to talk about it and the ways that it's this form of um, it's still regulation when you, when all these, all these clothing companies and magazines and skin products tell you what kinds of bodies it's okay to be positive about. Now, is you have a sort of even deeper kind of way of critiquing that way of thinking. And I wonder if you can take us through that. Yes. So here's the deal. This is the way that I experience the problem with body positivity, right? First of all, we have to body positivity, like many things that go mainstream, is a co-optation of something far more radical and then watered down in order to be palatable to those who are not interested in being moved more radically. And so body positivity is born out of fat liberation movements and fat liberation movements were born out of fat, queer people of color who could see already the the interconnectedness between the ways in which their bodies were targeted, shamed and put forth for violence as a result of their queerness or their blackness or you know their identities in some other kind of way as well as their identities in a fat body that is the place where body positivity began it began as fat liberation what happens is people who who exist in bodies that are more normative but still outside of well, actually, let me say this. There are no bodies that the system says is okay. Even, period. <laughs> like you could, like, it doesn't matter if you have whatever the world considers the most perfect body. That person is at home right now stressing out about how to maintain that body or complaining that it still isn't good enough. Because that is the system that we live in. The indoctrination is that on this ladder of bodily hierarchy, there is no sustainable top. If there were a sustainable top, then you could stop at some point, which would make you no longer a consumer. So that's not even viable, right? And so inside of body positivity are the people who certainly have more privileges in that system of bodily hierarchy, but still feeling the impacts of being told that they're never going to be good enough. And so they are using the tools of a, a radical liberatory movement to deal with their own self-image, self-worth, self-esteem issues. In order to, but not interested in dismantling the system that created that issue to begin with just interested in not having it have as much of an impact on them. And that's the problem with body positivity is that, and it's also the problem when I talk about like self-esteem and self-acceptance and those sorts of things is they are innately individualistic. They are about your own little feelings about yourself. And as long as your little feelings about yourself are fine, be damned with all the other people who are suffering at the hands of those systems. It's not about dismantling the system. It's about not feeling so bad inside of it because that system is still how people are deriving their own sense of worth. Their worth is still living inside of a system of comparison. So I want to be higher up, but in order to understand higher up, I still need some people below me. Where I think of that is like the, the, the I, I'm okay with my thighs mantra is I'm still comparing 
you know? I'm still, and I'm also only inside my own body. I am not thinking about other bodies. I am have, I just have this image in my head of what they should look like. And I am telling myself it's okay that they don't look like that. That's not the point, you know? <laughs> That's not the point. It is more radical than that. And, and, and yet there is work on the self to be done. And I think that this is one of the most, um, I think it's one of the hardest parts of your book. Like you, you said you wrote a duh book, but it's that balance between doing the work on yourself that has to be done and not settling for um, self-help. What I offer is that there is no experience that you are having that doesn't have a context in the larger world. And there's no experience in the larger world that doesn't have a place of embodiment inside of us. And so the assignment is always to build in me that which I would like to see in the world. And if I am trying to dismantle a system in the world, but I haven't thought about how it shows up in me, I'm probably not going to get the job done. If I'm trying to dismantle something in me and I haven't thought about how it impacts other people in the world, not going to get the job done. We require and integrate. We need to understand that we are the system we're talking about. <laughs> the system is not some amorphous blob outside that needs something done to it. It is a manifestation of our thinking, being, behaviors, ideas, and then those things made manifest in the world. That's what it is. Capitalism. Can't live with it. Can't make the show without it. Here's some ads. I know a lot of folks take January off from booze, to which I say, welcome, my friends. You're just visiting for a month, but I live here. Allow me to show you around. I'm going to skip the benefits of being sober. You probably have thought about those. I want to get to the most important thing that only an insider can help you with. You're going to need to find something to drink that gives you the flavor complexity of a cocktail without being one, full of caffeine or two, full of sugar. Diet Coke and coffee and fizzy water with lemon only take you so far. May I recommend Ken Euphorics? I discovered them a while back and my husband and I go through at least a bottle a month of their dream light. It's a clove cinnamon amaro drink that's really good for a nightcap. It tastes soothing and it is soothing. It has nootropics designed to promote sleep. I drink it on the rocks, but it's also really good in a hot toddy. And they have two other options that are also great, although we don't zip through them like we do with the dream light. High Road is herbaceous, closer to gin maybe. It's refreshing, but it won't make your head fuzzy. Use it like you would any kind of herbally booze, like with club soda or tonic. Give it a squeeze of lime or maybe a cucumber spear. Ken Spritz is a sparkling April-like brain boost with no hangover. I imagine kind of popping one open once the weather gets nice again, but you could also just pretend the weather is nice if you want. Now, with friends like these, podcast listeners can receive 15% off plus free shipping right now. Go to kenuforex.com slash friends or use offer code friends at the checkout to claim this deal. That's K-I-N-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com slash friends. We thank them for being a sponsor of this program. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Just Egg. Start your day and your 2021 off right with plant-based Just Egg, a better egg for you and the planet. The science is pretty clear. Plant-based diets can improve everything from heart health to life longevity. And you're listening to an episode that's critical of diet culture. So I want to make clear, I'm going plant-based because it feels good more than anything else. My digestion is better. I'm not so logy after meals. I am not on a diet, I am switching out something I like for something even better. Just Egg is just like eggs, and the only thing I really notice about them when I cook is that it's a lot easier to pour some eggs out of a bottle than to crack them. It's 
easier and it's neater. Just Egg is protein-packed but with less saturated fat and no cholesterol. If you have two chicken eggs with breakfast, that's already 124% of your recommended cholesterol for the day. Just Egg is also better for the planet, made from mung beans. Just Egg uses 93% fewer carbon emissions and 98% less water than a conventional egg. It takes 53 gallons of water to produce a single egg. 53 gallons. Another good reason to go plant-based. Just Egg is a great way to start eating more plant-based for your health without sacrificing taste. It tastes and cooks just like conventional eggs. And you can use them in not just like egg things, but anywhere you put eggs in baking, French toast, pad thai. You can find Just Egg pretty much at any grocery store, including Whole Foods and Kroger, and on Amazon Prime now or Instacart. Just Egg, a better egg for you and the planet. Thank you to Just Egg, a great product from a great company with a great mission. Proud to have you with us. Now, more of my conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor. Yeah, you talk in the book a lot about the um, domino effect of radical self-love, let's say, um, both in this expansive universal way of like that, that we really are changing the world and, and creating um, equity rather than equality um, if we can engage in radical self-love. But you also talk about it sort of in this like day-to-day way too, right? Like that it, that it can show up that when you truly are able to practice this, this will show up in your life in real ways. The way you spend money, the kind of work you do, the kind of friends you make. And I am, I, I'm so, my producer's going to laugh because I haven't referred to recovery in like three episodes, but I'm going to do that here. Um, so I'm in recovery. And there's a lot in your book that's, you know, uh, there's um, some harmony there, right? The one thing I thought though, was we do have a saying in the rooms, fake it till you make it. Um, yeah, which has to do with actually trying to, and maybe I'm being nitpicky here, but part of me wants to say like, does it work from the outside in too? Because you talk a lot about the inside out part of it and how if we make the changes on the inside, we'll see the changes on the outside. But sometimes like it is so hard to do that work on the inside. Yes, I I. I think it's a both and, right? And 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 actually I see it totally aligned with like recovery in 12 step, right? 12 step says like fake it till you make it. Like can you just not drink today? Right? And get to a meeting. But they also tell you if you stay in those rooms and just go to the meetings and you ain't never worked none of the steps, you're probably not going to stay sober long, right? That's the so and the step or you'll be miserable, right? And so your, your life won't change in substantive ways, right? If you'll do the one thing you said you didn't want to do, you might not drink. But, but, but what recovery promises is a new life, right? And so I would offer that, you know, if we're using this parallel to recovery, the 12 steps is the inner work, right? And then the actions, not going to a meeting, being abstinent, doing whatever those things are, is the outside work. And you can always, yes, do the outside work. And that's in the, in the, um, I, in a workbook that is a company to this book uh, called Your Body is Not an Apology. I have 12 steps to radical self-love. I'm, I'm lying. I'm making up things. I'm comparing it to the, <laughs> I was like, it's 10 steps. It's 10 steps. But we can add, the, we can add two from the 12-step program. It works. Uh, <laughs> but the last step is give yourself some grace. And it is, you can do, like, it's going to be hard. It's, it is going to, you are going to do this imperfectly. You are going to wake up and be like, I still hate my body and I hate other bodies. I still think horrible thoughts about other, you are going to have all of those things. And can you just for today, love the person who has that? That is to me, that's the fake until you make it part is, can I practice loving the me who isn't any of the things I wanted to be yet? Can I love that? Can I, can I just pretend I love that person? Can I just say it until it starts to change me? Because that is how that works still. So I think it's both. You do the work on the outside, 
do the work on the inside, you're going to ultimately have to do both if you really want to make, if we really want to make a new world, we will indeed eventually have to do both. And I think this winds us back around to 2020, um, to COVID, to Black Lives Matter, to COVID, to Black Lives Matter. Um, Because, wow, it was the year of, of body terrorism. Well, I would say that it was the year of of accurate vision of body terrorism. That's what I I say every day. 2020 was the year of clear vision. If you wanted to see it, it was here to see this year. I I want to kind of go to a lower level of it, um, which is this idea of how it's impacted on our everyday lives, right? Like, I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had about the white people that showed up for Black Lives Matter marches and what those bodies are going to be doing in the future. I have a feeling that's going to be a conversation we can have for a long time. So save it for another show. Yes, 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 yes. I'm, I'm happy to be on that one. <laughs> you are perfect as you are. You do not need anything to complete you. And that said, here's some things you can buy. Magic Spoon is a longtime sponsor of the show. Magic Spoon makes the cereals of your childhood only with zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. Again, we're in the middle of an episode on diet culture. So I need you to know that I am very pro-sugar and very pro-carb, and I don't think any of us should be cutting out anything we love. Eat what you love. Don't apologize. Here's the thing. I eat Magic Spoon because as much as I love sugar, it does not love me back. If I have too much sugar, I can't sleep, I feel anxious, I get the same jitters you might get from caffeine. So I cut it where I can. I basically have a sugar budget. And with Magic Spoon, my sugar budget goes a lot farther. And I can have a sweet thing right before bed if my sweet tooth acts up then, which it often does. Whatever cereal was the one you begged for as a kid, Magic Spoon has a grown-up version for you. Cocoa, fruity, frosted, blueberry, and two new flavors, peanut butter and cinnamon. If you are someone who is thinking about carbs or gluten or grain or soy, it is free of those things. And I will give you a pro tip. You can sprinkle Magic Spoon on ice cream or whatever it is you're having that's sort of like ice cream. Also, mix flavors. Peanut butter goes great with cocoa or cinnamon. And I just now realized that fruity would probably go well with frosted. And this is why you should order a variety pack, which happens to be what we are giving you a deal on. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to design your own variety pack. And you can use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off of that order. Go nuts. Magic Spoon has a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT or use code FLT to save $5. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. That's it for ads. Here's the last bit of Sonia Renee Taylor. While it's fresh in our minds, like you're joining us via Zoom, right? Zoom was everything in everybody's world. But so it's a year that we've been more aware of bodies than ever, but also had to live outside of our bodies. Like, how do you, do you, have you, I I assume, and I know you must have thought about how all of this stuff sort of impacts the work of body justice and radical self-love. Like, what do you, what do you think's happening? Yeah. um, So I think the first thing for me that is important to always say is I'm never only talking about the corporal body. I'm never only talking about our physical bodies. I ground the work in our physical bodies because we all got one. (laughs) It's the only way to do this particular ride. And so it's kind of the great equalizer in that way. But I'm always talking about our emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies as well. And I think if ever there were a time when we really had to reckon with all three of those this has been, you know, 2020 has been that time where we both were heightenedly aware of the dangers to our physical bodies, all of us, no matter what kind of body you were in, anywhere in the world, there was a particular threat, right? Then there was also the, in order to keep our physical bodies safe, we had to be away from each other. And so it left us in this experience of aloneness that is so you know, pronounced 
in this particular time that we had to be with our emotional and spiritual bodies and what came up in this aloneness, in this separation. Um, But the thing that feels the most important to reckon with this in this past year has been, and I keep saying this year because I'm like, it's December 33rd, y'all. Just stop playing. (laughs) Um, Is that we have, since the advent, I think, of the internet, treated it as some other world, right? Like as not real life. The internet is not real life. And so consequently, we've been on the internet acting like it's not real life in all kinds of ways. And 2020 has been like, hey, it's the only life you have. So you better figure out how to treat it like real life, which means that the same things that we contend with in the material world, we are now having to contend with in the digital world. Our responses and relationships to body, like I think this is an interesting turn of time where technology is demanding that we build the same sort of interpersonal structures that make you know material life operate and run figuring out what those look like. And are we going to replicate all of the trash things from our material world into our digital realm? Because that is where life is now. I think those are some of the big questions right now. So for me, what um, like 2020 is revealed in the, in how I was forced to live through my screen even more than I usually did was one thing that happened is I turned away from Twitter because it was just too toxic and I became more of an Instagram gal. Me too. I left Facebook and became an Instagram gal. I, yeah, I'm no longer on Facebook. That was years ago. I just, that's, that's Facebook is, Facebook is a hellhole. Um, but, uh, so Instagram, which is great in many ways, although it's so, it's such a funny thing to think about in terms of bodies and images and norms and looking good because the whole point of Instagram is to alter yourself to look better. <laughs> like, like, like the, it, it exists because of the filters, right? Like that's why it exists is to apply filters to people, which makes it um, ironic to say the least that it's also the place that I have seen personally, the most interesting kinds of engagement with, um, Radical self-love, not body positivity, but radical self-love. Um, I think it's, it, I've, one of the women that I follow uh, posted something very simple that I've, I've, of course, reposted now, which is that the thing you can do in this time where we're all time at diets and shit, put people who don't look like everyone, you know, put different bodies in your face. I don't, that sounds bad. I, again, I think it's so important for us to re- to remember that like the things that are massively transformative are often simple and and we don't they don't occur to us because they are because they don't occur to us because they live outside of our daily lives and so much of radical self-love is like hey get out of your story get out of your bubble get out of what it because whatever that is is the wall of radical self that's the boundary of your radical self-love and it's the boundary of the way of the radical self-love that is available to everybody else who doesn't look like whatever your ceiling and wall looks like. Seeing other bodies is what disrupts the story of normativity, the default body. The default body is whatever body it is that magically pops in our brains when we think human, (laughs) right? Oh, there's, I'm talking to a woman the other day. And then we have what the woman is, who the woman was. And that's the default body. And that has been shaped throughout our society to be very specific. The way that we interrupt that is by changing the default body that is in front of us so that it is not just cisgendered. It's not just thin. It's not just white. It's not just able-bodied. It's not just relatively young. It becomes all kinds of bodies. And then our awareness of other people in the world begins to expand. And that's how we stop just being individualistic assholes. <laughs> and I, I'm gonna bring it back to the thing about like, sometimes it's harder for me to love myself than to love others. You know, it's harder for me to do the inside work than the outside work. And I feel like what has happened for me in, in following all these, um, you know, fat phobia slayers 
um, and trans people and non-binary people and just all these different kinds of people is I find it really easy to love them. You know, like they're awesome. Like it's clear. <laughs> it's clear to me. <laughs> of course you should love these people. And then I'm like, oh yeah, and me too. That's really, you know, one of my favorite, you know, I love Lizzo for a multitude of reasons, but one of my favorite things that I love is that in her concert, she says, if you can love me, you can love yourself. And it's, and what it does is it does that outside in thing, right? It expands what it is that we understand as lovable. It disrupts the, like the, the lovability scale that's inside of our brain that goes uninterrogated. And it's like, Oh, I do love this fat black woman. She's amazing. Um, and then from there, it's like, why would I extend love to someone else that I can't extend to myself? Like, why do I love a stranger and I'm not loving myself? Like we can start to feel the dissonance. Like, of, of course I could love myself. Of course I should love myself. And then we can start to be like, well, if I don't, what's in the way? What are the things that are in between? And that's also where you start to get to me the, the domino effect of um, self-love is you start asking yourself why you're doing things, you know, like, why am I buying this? Why am I watching this show and not that show? Right. Because once we start to ask ourselves the why, right, I always, I say often, it's rarely about what we do and it's almost always about the why. Because if you can get to the why, then you, you're at something, you're at the like crux of like, what your motivation is. And then you can start to be like, mm, I don't like that. That's actually not, my why isn't aligned with who I desire to be in the world. My why isn't aligned with what I really want to see come forth from me. So how do I begin to shift my actions and behaviors to match up with the why that I'm interested in living? I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit because um, we have been talking a lot about female, femme, female identifying bodies, I feel like, but be, because, or actually, you know what, I should say, it's might be assumed that that's what we're doing. I was, yeah, because, that's an assumption. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> you know, I, I, well, I was thinking about people listening and right. Who I, and, but I'll confess, that's, that's something that I still have a habit towards, right? Called myself out on it. Yay. Um, one step, one tiny step, but I wanted to ask about making that assumption and ask about male bodies in this conversation or male identifying bodies that are a part of it. And they feel, oh, I, I know my, my husband talks about his belly all the time. Like, you know, I know they feel shame. Well, he, she, he probably, you know, he's an average white guy. Shame might be strong. Um, <laughs> But where do you, where is that conversation happening or what part of the conversation should we be hearing? Yeah, I think we're not, I think we don't invite male identified people into the conversation often enough. But I also think that's intentional. I think that part of the structures of body shame and body terrorism are to disconnect um, male identified people from being allowed to interrogate these experiences inside of themselves. And so there's just a, a, a lack of inquiry about it. It, it is one places where it really runs um, just uninterrupted and uninterrogated. And then when you invite them into the conversation, then they are like, oh, Oh yeah, no, I do feel that. I, actually, yeah, no, I have get, get, had those messages. Oh yeah, no, I I do feel shame. I just don't. I'm not allowed to think about it. Right? Like the, I think inside of the box of masculinity is all these things you're just not allowed to think about. And then, but they're always running. They're always running. They're always infiltrating how we move through the world. I talk in the book about uh, men, white men over fifty, having uh, there's a a New York Times study that white men over 50 saw their rates of suicide jump by nearly 50%. And the question was like, well, why are white men over 50 all of a sudden increasingly killing themselves? And it's because I believe here, I'm, let me, I was going to say it's because like, I know for sure, here's my hunch. <laughs> my hunch is that when 
when someone's entire identity is externally validated, that it is based off of whether or not you you make as much money as you need to make to be considered, you know, a, a man, whether or not you are physically strong enough to be considered a man, whether or not you are sexually virile enough to be considered a man, whether or not there are all of these externalized factors that determine whether or not you are worthy as a man. And as you age, those things begin to change, whether or not you make the same amount of money, whether or not you're sexually virile or able-bodied or strong, or all of these markers fall away. And if that's the foundation of your sense of worthiness and identity, then what do you have left when they begin to go? You don't have anything to anchor yourself into. I think that's one of the conversations that we don't have with men and don't let, don't leave the space and room for men to really talk about and grapple with. I have so many more thoughts, but I know you have to go. So I'm going to ask one last question. So, um, I wanted to ask before you, before you leave, what's the hardest part of this work that you're doing? Coming back to it, the hardest part is exactly what you said, the inner work. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I wrote this book so that I would have a guide to come back to, so that I don't forget how to do this work, because it is so easy. and We have everything in the world to detract us, you know? to move us further away from our own experience of radical self-love. I wrote this book so that I could have something to return to, to pull me back to my own shoreline. Um, yeah, living it, living it in a world that is, that is committed to me not living it is by far the hardest thing about the work. Um, and it, that's why it's so important that I don't do it alone, that I have community and that I have um, folks who are also on this journey so that I, when it's hard, I can say I'm really struggling today and I can, you know, I can get people who are here to remind me that, um, I'm on the right path and, and that I can get back there. Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. And that is it for the show. We try to keep these episodes evergreen, but if you're listening to this during the second week of January, may I suggest that your New Year's resolution be something along the lines of, I don't need to change anything about myself? A kind of anti-resolution to start you down the path that Sonia Renee Taylor has laid out for us. Her book is The Body is Not Apology. It does have an accompanying workbook if you crave more of what she has to say, and why wouldn't you? This show is a production of Crooked Media, is produced by Allison Herrera. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Izzy Margulies is our new Lily Alexandrov, although it is also true we will someday need someone to be the new Izzy. Liam McMahon is my social media imposter. Whitney Pastrick just wants to feed people, goddammit, and if you can donate to the World Central Kitchen, that would make her very happy. You really are perfect as you are. Take care of yourselves. 